You notice the title of our lesson, The Grace of God. What do you think about that? What do you think about God's grace? Say it again. Marvelous. We sing a lot called Amazing Grace, don't we? And I think, you know, it's hard to find adjective to describe it. My question would be, who is God's grace for? Everyone that wants it, yes, indeed. <clears throat> now, we did a lesson some months ago now <clears throat> on unconditional salvation, irresistible grace. And those in that group would tell us that grace is only for those who are saved. I think grace finds its fullest, its complete fulfillment in those who are born again. But I think God sheds grace on everybody to some degree. And Lavenda, I like your answer. I believe that God's grace is for anybody who wants it. So my next question is, who deserves it? No one does. No one deserves it. And so when we think about God's grace, what a wonderful topic it is. And Wayne, you're right, it's marvelous, it's amazing. But God's grace is the lone source from which flows his goodwill, his love, and even his salvation. Now, again, we know that it is God's will that everybody be saved. Is everybody going to be saved? No. But it is for everyone who chooses, uh, who accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when we think about God's grace, and we've already answered the question, who deserves it? No one does. No one ever has. But it's interesting, the good thing about God's grace is the fact that God chooses to bless us rather than curse us. And by the way, could he very well curse us? Would he have reason to? Yes, without a doubt, he would be. So, again, God chooses to bless us rather than curse us. Now, because that our, our sin deserves being cursed, uh, deserves hell. But God's grace, his goodness toward us, and keep in mind, it is always undeserving. So, again, we talked about God's sovereignty a few weeks back. Uh, divine grace uh, is the sovereign God and the saving favor of God, uh, exercising benefits or giving benefits to those who have no merit, no reason in themselves to say, okay, God, I deserve this. We can't do that. It's simply God's grace. Kind of interesting Not only does God give his grace to those who have no positive things in their life to deserve it, but would you agree, and and this is kind of kind of rough because I think because we're all in that same boat, but do we consider some people worse than other people? Yes, we do. Uh, my brother was talking about something the other day. I said, well, I said, he profiled you. And he said, yeah, that's right. I said, but the problem is we all profile. We're all guilty of it to some degree. But we also realize, you know, there are murderers. There are rapists out there. And uh, my question is, we think about you and I who maybe we were good moral people even before we got saved. But God's grace is even available to those who we would consider 
hell-deserving, those who, without a doubt, are awful, horrible, mean people, and it's clear in their actions. But it's interesting uh, that grace is not, it's unmerited, and sometimes it's unsought. We're going to talk about somebody later on that didn't even seek it, if you will. And the bottom line is, there's nothing in our lives, on our own merits, that attracts the grace of God. All of us deserve hell. So, yet God shed His grace on our lives. Can we buy grace? No. Can we earn it by working for it? No. Now, by the way, if we can earn it, then it's not grace. Would you agree with that? Well, we'll have a verse with that in just a moment here. So we can't buy it because if we did, it would stop being grace. Um, Can anybody say, rightfully say, and be true truth about it now? Anybody can say anything you want to say. Can I say, I've got God's grace because I deserve that grace? No. No one can rightly say that. And so we have to understand and be thankful that God didn't give us what we deserve, but He chooses to give us grace. So it's, it's just a gift of His love. And it's even when we don't desire sometimes, God comes to us. Go to Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Anybody want to read that? Thank you, Alan. That's almost a tongue twister, isn't it? So what's Paul telling us in that verse? Can't earn it. Because then once you do, it's not grace. Isn't that true? You can't buy it because once you do, it stops being grace. Now, I think I'm not off the mark too far, but I think most of us realize here tonight that if we really want to learn about grace from the Scriptures, Whose writings should we read? The Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul gives us, I think, the fullest exposition on the amazing grace of God. And we're going to find out a little later on a little bit why that is true. And it's also interesting, uh, Paul was very clear about it. And Alan, you just read one verse, and that's what we had tonight. But there are a lot of verses when Paul talked about God's grace. But the the bottom line is Paul was adamant. Grace stands in direct contrast of our works. But also stands in direct contrast of our worthiness. So again, let me ask the question, how much works do we need to earn grace? None. Will all the works in the world earn me grace? No. All right, so... Paul would take grace on one side, contrast it to works. But also, he says, grace stands in direct contrast to worthiness. Now, let's keep in mind what we're talking about here. First of all, we know that Paul was Jewish by birth. And did the Jews believe in a works-based salvation? Sure they did. 
keeping the law, doing these things. But they also believed, because they were Jews, they were worthy of God's grace. How many know both of those statements were not true? They couldn't work hard enough or long enough to earn God's grace, and they weren't worthy enough to deserve God's grace. So it's interesting. I don't know if you remember or not in grade school, maybe when you had that little science class, and, and they, you know, they would tell you that oil and water won't mix. You ever seen that played out? I remember in our class, they brought a glass, like a mason jar in, and we poured some oil in it and poured some water, and guess what happened? Yeah, they separate. They just don't mix. And grace and works simply don't mix. Now, keep in mind, and we'll talk more about that maybe a little later on, we're talking about working for our salvation, not working once we're saved, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, you know the verse. Uh, thank you, Dan. Now, certainly a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, but let's kind of analyze it just a little bit uh, tonight. Uh, Paul says very clearly, it's by grace we're saved through faith. But then he goes on and says that it's not of ourselves. So if that's, and that, and that's true, so where does grace come from? It's a gift from God. Now, also notice the last part of that verse, of, I'm sorry, verse 9 Paul said it's not of works. In other words, you don't work to earn it. Because Paul is a good student of human nature. And Paul knew if we could earn it, would we brag about it? Sure he would. And so Paul said it's not of works because there was. People would boast about it. They would brag about it. So when it comes to our salvation by grace, what do we have to brag about on our own? Nothing at all. It's all a gift from God. Romans 4, verse 4 and 5. Okay, now it's kind of interesting. Um, Paul talked about the one that works, they get a reward. Paul said their pay, Paul says that is not because of grace. If you work and you get paid, why do you get paid? Yeah, you work for it. You earned that wage. And, and we understand that principle. Now, of course, Paul is applying it to our spiritual lives. And he goes on in verse 5 there to tell us, that those that are not working for their and meaning their salvation, but simply believes on the one, that's Jesus Christ, who justifies the ungodly, Paul says that faith is counted for righteousness. Now, by the way, chapter four of Romans, <clears throat> Paul spends the entire chapter laying out the groundwork, if you will, principle by principle on why salvation comes not by our works, not by keeping the law, but apart from those works, and it comes through faith alone. Also, and we don't have part of our uh, text, at least not right here tonight, 
uh, Paul made a statement <clears throat> referring back to Genesis where the Bible said Abraham believed God <clears throat> and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that's where Paul bases his whole testimony, his whole, his whole lesson on why we are saved by the grace of God and we're saved through faith, not because of our works. Let me give you three, three principal characteristics of divine grace. Uh, number one, it's eternal. Now, grace was planned before it was exercised. Grace was purposed before it was imparted. 2 Timothy 1.9. Anybody want to read that one? Right, thank you, Rhonda. Notice, if you will, in the, <clears throat> in the middle of the verse, Paul writing to this young preacher, talks about being saved uh, and being called by God. And Paul said it wasn't according to our works, but according to God's purpose and to God's grace. But then he says it was in Christ Jesus before the world began. So grace is eternal. A second point about grace, <clears throat> we've really already touched on that, it is free. How many are glad it's free? Amen. Grace is completely a gift from God. Romans 8, uh, 5, verse 15. Uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, Paul is talking about a free gift here. Now, he talks about an offense. Uh, that word offense means a stumbling. And God created Adam and Eve perfect. Would you agree they stumbled? They sinned. Okay? And Paul is comparing the two here. And he said because of their offense, because of their stumbling, Paul says many be dead spiritually. One offense, many are dead spiritually. But Paul compares that, he says, much more the grace of God. And he said this gift is by grace, by one man, Jesus Christ. And Paul said, that grace has abounded unto many. And would you agree it's for whosoever will? That's what the scripture says. So it is free. It is freely given. The third point, and I hesitated to use this, but I think I can explain it a little bit better. Grace wins. Jason, can you help me out with this for a minute? Did, did Rob Bell come out with a book named that? Oh, was it Love Wins? Okay. But, but I, I doesn't mean if people choose to reject Christ, if they choose to, and they live in a dying condition, it doesn't mean that grace overcomes. That's not the issue. But understand, 
Sin has reigned a long time. Let's go ahead and read our verse and I'll make a comment, okay? Uh, Romans 5.21. All right, thank you, Dan. Now, we know the Bible says in uh, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to do what? To die. Uh, how many know unless Jesus comes, that's an appointment we'll all keep? Everyone, okay? And why do we have to die? Because of sin. And sin has reigned all of this time. And the good news is, and even in the world we live in today, and it's been that way since Adam and Eve sinned, our age, any age, has been characterized by sin, and of course, death. But the age to come is going to be characterized by grace, by righteousness, and by eternal life. Now, we talk about the struggle going on spiritually in our world today, and we often refer to that the conflict between good and evil. Now, please understand, uh, from the time Adam and Eve sinned to the time of Christ, uh, death had reigned. And what's interesting, until Jesus came, the war between evil and, con- evil and good, or, or the conflict between good and evil, until Jesus came, it looked like the outcome had already been decided because sin was reigning unto death. But the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection said, Death, you don't have the last word. You don't have the last word. And so when Christ died and he raised from the grave, we have now a a decisive victory by which grace is going to reign. So grace wins. So under the reign of grace, a righteousness is declared, and that is going to bring eternal life. Now, again, folks, don't miss the importance of this topic tonight. We are talking about eternal life. And who deserves it? No one. But please understand, grace is going to win. And we also have to realize that eternal life itself is indeed a gift. And so we can't earn it by good works. We can't say, I deserve that. I, uh, it's my right to have eternal life. Uh, because it's not. But the good news is, the one who gives grace, the one who gives eternal life, will he turn away anybody who comes seeking him with a whole heart. No. He will not turn them away. Now, keep in mind, there's an important caveat here. Not only do we come seeking him, would you agree we've got to come his way? Sure. But he doesn't turn those people away. So... 
Anybody who comes to God empty-handed and say, Lord, I have nothing to bring. You remember the parable Jesus gave of the Pharisee and the tax collector and how they went to the temple to pray, to the synagogue. And that Pharisee prayed, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. I, you know, I pray three times a day. I fast twice a week, blah, blah, blah. And the tax collector could only beat his breast and cry out to God. And Jesus asked the question, which one went away justified? The tax collector. He had nothing to bring, just himself. And folks, when we come to God that way, God will not refuse his grace, and he will not refuse eternal life. We've talked enough about God the last few months, and I think you already knew this, but what can God do? When? When he wants. And we know that. But how many know, how many know that God will never force his gift of grace on anyone? Isn't that true? He will not force that gift of grace on those who refuse to repent, on those who decide to remain unbelieving, he is not going to force his grace on them. And we also have to understand God is under no obligation at all to force that on anyone who doesn't value the gift of grace. He simply will not do that. And did you also know that God is not compelled to save those who choose to go their own way? Now, does he want to save people? Sure he does. He absolutely does. Now, the problem is, now remember, the key point of grace is it's free. Would you agree with that? You can't buy it. You can't work hard enough. And we're not worthy enough. Couldn't be, ever. But the problem is, and I think all of us have dealt with it at one time in our lives, almost everything in life, if you want it, how are you going to get it? Other than stealing it, okay? Say it again. Who said that? You're going to work for it, right? And most of us, I think here tonight, whatever we get, we think we ought to work for it. But the problem with that is, and there's nothing wrong with that to, to a point, I suppose, but because we are so self-righteous, sometimes it's difficult for us to believe that grace cannot be earned. Isn't that true? And now, again, if you're saved tonight, you realize that you can, and you've, you've uh, you know, come to Christ that way. But there are many in our world today who simply have trouble believing that there's nothing we have to do 
in order to get God's grace. It's a gift from God. So when we think about the glory of God's free grace, I don't think it shines any brighter when we consider the unworthiness and how unlikely those got, whom God pours His grace on. Now again, we tend to profile people better than we are, worse than whatever it is. But in God's eyes, who are, who are sinners? All of us are. We fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, verse 20. Somebody read that, please. Thank you, Dan. What does that verse tell us? Ah, there we go. Grace wins, yes. I, I think about, you know, and, you know, it's hard to illustrate sometimes and, and do it just, and I hope that I am tonight, because I don't think Paul had uh, speed limit signs on the road. They may have, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, in our time, we have speed limit signs. And what are they there for? Okay. And if there's a number on that sign, it tells you what? Yeah, drive this speed no more. But can that sign keep us from speeding? No. But it lets you know. And it's amazing, you know, those lights come on behind you, whether blue or red, I forgot what they are anymore. And if you're speeding, you know, hey... They got me. Now, the, the sign told you, but it couldn't make you. And Paul is talking about when the law came. Now, keep in mind, we see creation of the world in the first part of Genesis. Adam and Eve in the garden. We saw sin come. We saw that God expelled them out of the garden. Okay? And I don't know exactly the time lapse there, how long it took. But my question is, did God give them the law shortly after they were cast out of the garden? No. Abraham lived before the law. The law was given during the time of Moses. So does that mean, since there was no law, does that mean there was no sin before the law? Amen. But the law said, okay, you've exceeded the speed limit here. Sin has always been. But now that you know, now that you know, sin abounded. But Lavinda, I like what you said. Where sin abounded, grace did what? It much more. It wins. And I did a study on that some years ago, if my memory served me correctly. It literally means sin superabounds. So what's interesting is this. No matter how much people sin, the Bible says God's grace is greater. How many are glad of that? His grace is greater. I know there are times in our lives, and I don't know about the unsaved or not, but I know in my life, and probably in your life as well, 
there are times that we sort of get a, a fresh look of the reality of how simple we really are. Of how much we really fall short of the glory of God. And that's me and that's you. Sometimes when we consider the commandments of God, His Word, and we realize that, wow, I'm falling short of that one. Or those, whatever it is. Sometimes our conscience is filled with guilt. Sometimes God sends a brother or sister along that loves you and cares about you and and comes alongside and, and, and says you're falling short in this area, in this simple act or this habit. But here's what I want you to realize. And John says it well in his letters. We shouldn't sin. Now, we're not sinless. But if you're born again, we ought to sin less. We ought to want to please our Father. So, my question is, when we sin, have we lost it all? No. I remember years ago as a young Christian, I hadn't been saved very long. And uh, I was talking to a group of men at General Motors. And I don't remember the exact of the word that I used. It wasn't a cuss word, but it was a slang word. Now, again, I'm not trying to give you a list. I'm just telling you how God dealt with me on that. And I, I, I said that word. And I thought, oh, Lord, what have I done? You know, what have I done? Now, the guys in the group didn't catch it because it, you know, it didn't bother them, but, and it really wasn't even a curse word of any kind in that way. But I just didn't think a Christian ought to use that kind of language. But there's something I didn't realize, even if it, you know, it, of course, I was under conviction for it. But what we need to realize, whenever we begin to consider how much we fall short of God's glory, whenever guilt begins to fill our mind, whenever we are, someone points out, a, a brother or sister points out a, a shortcoming in our life, and they do it in love, and we, and we realize, hey, you know what, they're right. I, I need to step up here and, and move on with God. So whenever our awareness of our sin increases, for whatever reason, when it increases, we need to go to God and ask God, Lord, help me to see that your grace is always greater than my sin. Always greater than my sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to God. Now, I know through the years I've heard people use that in soul winning, and uh, that's not where it fits. The we is Christians. And by the way, if anybody should know better than to sin, who should it be? Christians. Amen. And I, there's no doubt in my, in my heart, in my mind, that most Christians who are walking worthy don't want to sin. 
But God says, if you do, if we confess those sins, what will God do? Say it again, Wayne. Why? Ah, His grace is greater than our sin. Isn't that wonderful? But not only will He forgive us, He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whenever sin has abounded, the court from heaven says, grace superabounds. How many are glad for the grace of God tonight? Thank you, Lord. I want to look at several, just a few examples from the scripture. We could have a bunch, but we got just a few. Uh, the first one was King Manasseh. Now, by the way, um, and this is only my opinion. I didn't read it from a commentary. I have read through the Kings, I don't know how many times. But in my opinion, Manasseh was one of the worst kings ever in Judah. Only my opinion. And again, I'm profiling. I realize that. In my opinion, because of what Manasseh did and what he caused the people of Judah to do, that was, if you will, the beginning of the final straw on the camel's back. He was that bad. Let's go to Second Chronicles. Just give you a little bit of a glimpse, okay? Chapter 33, the first two verses. Thank you, Jason. How long did it rain, Jason? Did he did it say there? Yeah. How many years? Fifty-five years. Uh, just a side note here. I think it's amazing Queen Elizabeth reigned seventy years. How many know that she was a devout Christian? Did you know that? Uh, if you ever get a chance, to, you can Google it or look it up on uh, Haven Today. They've been they did a series on that. Uh, someone who wrote a biography about Queen Elizabeth, very devout. If you watched any of the, any of the funeral uh, by her choice, a lot of scripture was read. And the songs they sang were unbelievable Christian songs. That was by her design. But she reigned 70 years. And I have no doubt uh, God blessed her because her, and, and those who knew her intimately knew she was indeed a devout Christian. Not so with Manasseh. He did reign a long time. He was 12 years old when he began to reign. But verse 2 says, what did he do? Evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, again, this is a footnote. didn't cost anything extra. Many people believe that God was not fair when he sent the Israelites in and had him drive out the Canaanites. But the Bible tells us, if you read the Scriptures and compare Scripture with Scripture, that God had given the Canaanites years to repent, to change their ways. And what happened? They didn't. So finally, it came to the time, and God said, that's enough. Again, he will not force his grace on those who don't want it. So that's why God drove the Canaanites out. And 
here in Chronicle we find that Manasseh was behaving like these heathen did. And one of the things that God detested among many was child sacrifice. And Manasseh was involved in that. And also, he caused a lot of the people of Judah, I don't know how many, to get involved in those kind of things. So when you think about Manasseh, he was a monster of barbarity. In fact, I talked about child sacrifice. He had his own children sacrificed. And Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He was that bad of a king. He was very well adept in iniquity. He not only multiplied it to an extravagant extravagant degree, Manasseh's own religious practice were horrible. And he even poisoned the principles and he perverted the lifestyle of those who served him. And the Bible says he made them do worse or led them, if you will, in that direction of doing the worse and the most detestable things, the ones that God had driven out of the land. And now his people are doing it. So stop it there for a moment before we read on. How do you think God felt about that? Not happy at all. Let's go to chapter 33, verse 11 through 13, Second Chronicles. Is that grace? It was so bad. I mean, can you imagine being led? You're the king. And you're being led in chains with hooks in your jaws. And you're carried away into captivity. Why was he carried away? Because of the awful things he did. And yet the Bible says... There came a time while in Babylon, he realized something. And he began to seek the Lord. Manasseh finally humbled himself before his holy God. And the Bible says he prayed to God and he begged God. Now hold on. What if we were God? What we what we would we might have said? That's right, Amen. You had your yeah, there you go. You had your chance, buddy. I mean, time and time again, fifty five years, almost, and you wouldn't. But the Bible says he prayed, he begged God, 
And then it says, God heard his supplication. Can I ask you a question? I'm going to anyway. Is that grace? Is that grace? I mean, think about that. I wonder how many good things Manasseh had on his list and could say, Lord, look what I did. I did this good. I did that good. None. He had nothing to bring to God. And my, I, I have to ask another question. Do you think Manasseh finally recognized how bad he was? Sure he did. And God heard his prayer. And God brought him back again to Jerusalem. And it says, at the end of the day, Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Question for you. Did Manasseh deserve that? No. But neither do I. That's the grace of God. So it was through God's superabounding grace that Manasseh was humbled, he was reformed, and became a child of forgiving love. And I want to tell you, folks, he became an heir of eternal life because of the grace of God. That's Manasseh. Next guy is Saul of Tarsus. You ever hear of him before? In fact, we've been reading from Romans. We call him Paul. Uh, that's the uh, Greek name. Um, let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 9, the first two verses. Thank you, Dan. Okay, what's going on here? He's doing what? Now, wait a minute, Dan. I know you've read the Bible. Uh, in chapter 7, he was there and he watched Stephen get stoned. Wasn't that enough to satisfy his appetite? No. And who knows how many families he had disrupted? Who knows how many uh, were killed under his authority and he's still wanting more. The Bible says, yet breathing out threatenings. One commentary said, with every breath. In other words, he enjoyed persecuting Christians as much as, as, much as he did breathing. He wasn't satisfied. All of those families he'd already ruined, those lives he'd already taken were not enough to avenge his vengeful spirit. And notice this. What was he wanting from the high priest? Yeah, to do what? Yeah, let me go get some more, Lord. I mean, to, the, uh, to the, uh, those in charge. Give him the authority to do that. Now, what's interesting, and again, we don't know how many he'd already done, but... It simply didn't satisfy him. He wanted more. And it was so insatiable, the Bible says he breathed out 
threatenings, and slaughter. Now, i got to tell you, folks, his words were spears and they were arrows. He was bent on persecuting the children of God. Their death, as a result, their blood was shed because of his malicious heart. And let me ask you a question. I wonder why he didn't kill more. He didn't have the authority to, but he wanted it. He wanted more and more power. He wanted, if you will, to destroy those of the way, Christianity. All right. Now, suppose we live then. And in his life, in our lifetime, we're only to Acts chapter 1. Um, chapter 9, I'm sorry. First few verses. You know what happened to Stephen? Saul was consenting to his death. You've heard of others. And by the way, the word has spread because they were afraid of Paul when he got to Damascus. Even Ananias a little bit leery about going to him and sharing the gospel because of his reputation. So his reputation was well known. So we're thinking if anybody deserves hell, who does? Paul does. He absolutely deserves that. In fact, if you were here Sunday night, we talked about uh, the compartment of Hades called uh, Tartarus, a, a place reserved for fallen demons, the deepest dungeon. Uh, we would say that's where Paul belongs. That's what the havoc he's wrecked on the church. He certainly must be a candidate for hell, double hell if there's possible. First Timothy chapter one, verses twelve through fifteen. Down to 15, please. Thank you, Alan. Now, this is just a, uh, I suppose, a subjective Christian, a question, not Christian, and I realize God's Word is certainly inspired, God-breathed. But why in the world would Apostle Paul write so much in his letters about grace? Oh, yeah. Now, wait, I don't know about you, but I don't think Paul ever got over that. He never, ever got over that. And we think about this. And when we see when Paul is writing Timothy... He's admiring and adoring the inexhaustible treasure of grace. And by the way, Paul admits. He admits 
admits to what he had done. He admits to the desire he once had of destroying those who walk with Christ. But now, whenever we talk about great men of the Bible, great women of the Bible, would you agree Paul would make that list? Yeah. Is that grace or what? Is that grace or what? And not only that, we know that Paul was beheaded in a Roman prison. Paul also joined a noble army of martyrs. He was willing to let his life be poured out because he never forgot the grace of God. And as you read his letters, it just oozes out very evident that he never got over the grace that God had poured in his life. And he told Timothy, this is a worthy saying, Christ came to save sinners, and I'm among the worst. Where sin abounds, what does grace do? It superabounds. The grace of God. Well, we're about. Well, let's go one more, okay? Let's do the Corinthians. Somebody read verses 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 6. Okay, thank you, Rhonda. Now, how many would agree that somewhere in that list is ourself? Not as bad as some of them were, maybe, in our own eyes. But we were living unrighteous lives. And Paul gives a list here. And I'm not going to try to go back through them again. But in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. But he says, you're washed, you're sanctified, and you are justified. Because they deserve it? No. What's the only reason? The grace of God. Grace, grace. Marvelous grace. Well, we had a few more things I'm going to try to cover tonight. We're not going to do that. Uh, but I, I think in today as I... I went back through this, actually just in my office a few minutes ago. At the end of my notes, I put, praise his holy name. Praise his holy name for his wonderful grace. Amen. Oh, the second.